Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. What's really cool about self-compassion is that our self-worth does not come from our performance, but it comes from a sense of inner kindness and validation. And when our self-worth comes from external approval and support, we are always walking in a minefield because it can blow up any moment. That is Dr. Christopher Germer, clinical psychologist and lecturer in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the co-founder of the world-renowned Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. I had no idea that self-compassion was even a thing until I read a scientific paper on gratitude that showed how the intentional practice of gratitude increased self-compassion and decreases stress. I still remember staring at the words self-compassion on the page and thinking, what was that? Curious, I looked up self-compassion on PubMed, and I was blown away by the science that clearly showed how powerful the practice of self-compassion is for our mental health and for our ability to recover from failures and struggles. Because the science was so clear, I looked up Chris and signed up for a five-day retreat in the middle of a desert in California. Talk about awkward. There I was, a male thoracic surgeon with Navy and juvenile delinquent tattoos in a room filled with meditation cushions with only four other men and 60 women, most of whom were psychologists or social workers. I literally almost darted for the door, but I stuck it out and I'm so glad I did. It was the beginning of my journey down meditation lane and also down a lane of a new relationship with myself which of course translates into a new relationship with other people. To me, the impact of the practice of self-compassion is best summed up by a quote from Frank Ostaseski, the previous director of the Zen Hospice Center in San Francisco, who said in his beautiful book, The Five Imitations, self-compassion and self-forgiveness started to shake loose the calcifications that had accumulated around my heart. The concept of self-compassion may seem a bit offbeat and unusual, for the demanding world of cardiothoracic surgery, but I recommend opening your heart and mind to the idea and the practice. It really does work. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. 
The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, so it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Christopher Germer to the Resilient Surgeon podcast today for a conversation about the incredible power of being kind to ourselves, the power of self-compassion. Dr. Germer obtained his PhD in clinical psychology from Temple University, and for over 30 years has practiced as a clinical psychologist and lecturer in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Germer is also one of the pioneers who began to incorporate meditation and mindfulness as a valuable tool in psychotherapy. In 2010, Dr. Germer and his colleague, Dr. Kristen Neff, co-developed the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which has now been taught to over 150,000 people around the world, including academically rigorous programs to train other professionals to teach mindful self-compassion. Dr. Germer is the author or co-author of five books, including The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion, The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, Wisdom and Compassion in Psychotherapy, and Mindfulness in Psychotherapy. Before I move on to my questions and talking to Dr. Germer, I wanted to relate a story uh, to the audience about how I first met Dr. Germer in 2015. I was fresh off the heels of a prescription narcotic addiction, and I was about a year and a half or so out of having been at Hazelden uh, for three months, and I retired from surgery after that, and I was really suffering in a most monumental way from shame that I had basically become a moral failure uh, to myself, to my family, and to my work. And during my time at Hazelden, I was peppered constantly by my counselor to keep a gratitude journal. And of course, my surgical bias was that this is a weak action and wouldn't have any significant impact on my life. And so that's the setup uh, until I happened to get a uh, video from my daughter about gratitude. It was produced by a student at Boston College as part of his, uh, his, part of his graduation thesis. And he did a study looking at gratitude and the effects of gratitude practice on self-love and self-compassion. I was so stunned by the science behind this that I actually reached out to the student and got his uh, thesis. And within that were articles about mindful self-compassion that listed Dr. Neff and Dr. Germer. And so I was interested now because I had science behind me and I dug out the articles and I read his mindful self-compassion book. And I became convinced that there was something to this. So I signed up in 2015 before demand for these retreats went through the roof. And I remember so well, uh, I had never meditated before and my wife came with me and we were so nervous about meditating and how are we going to do this? And we bought little Zafu cushions to sit on. And, you know, we show up and we're driving out in the middle of the desert and I, I am truly like anxious and I walk into the reception area and I encounter basically 60 other females and three, maybe four men. And all those females were social workers and psychologists, as far as I can remember. And I literally, so there I am, a male, tattoos, ex-juvenile delinquent, all this stuff, and a surgeon. And my response is, I'm not doing this. I'm going home. This is not where I belong. I have strayed so far from my path. It's just awful. But Leanne, my wife, convinced me to stay. 
And I did get through the week. And in fact, not only did I get through it, but I was really stunned by everything that I learned there. I learned about loving kindness meditation. I learned where in my body I feel emotional pain and tension, which happens to be my abdomen. I learned the importance of actually using words to express how I'm feeling. And most importantly, the week started the process for me of self-forgiveness and healing from my entrenched belief that my addiction to prescription narcotics was a profound moral failing to myself, my family, and my work. To say I was verbally rough on myself during that period is really an understatement. But as Frank Ostaseski says in the book, the beautiful book, The Five Invitations, that self-forgiveness started to shake loose the calcifications that had accumulated around my heart. Dr. Germer's impact on me during that week was so profound that I signed up to spend another week on retreat, learning some of the methods of, methods of teaching self-compassion. And I also made a personal commitment to myself to work intentionally to get at least a bit of Dr. Germer's magic, especially his patience, understanding, and his wide open heart. So today I get to visit with a good friend who has a ton of wisdom about us human beings, and he's here to share some of that wisdom with us. Chris, Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real honor. Oh, Michael, thank you for having me. And I never heard your story before. It's so beautiful. And, and you tell it also in such a funny way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I mean, in, in many ways, I'm a caricature for, you know, <laughs> pe people that might not want to get on with mindful self-compassion. Well, yeah, Chris, could you do us, tell us a little bit about, you know, you were, deep into meditation and using that as a tool in psychotherapy. How did you get going on self-compassion? Yeah. So I also found my way to self-compassion through my own personal struggles. And um, as a uh, PhD in clinical psychology, I had also had a specialization in anxiety disorders. But for the next 20 years, I suffered from public speaking anxiety and everything I, nothing I tried worked, including beta blockers and exposure and everything. And, and then I learned self-compassion. Basically, I learned to be kind to myself, not only when I succeed, but also when I don't succeed. In other words, I learned to be kind to myself as a human being who happens to, you know, have some uh, flaws and imperfections as we all do, you know, mm -hmm. for me, uh, self-kindness was more contingent on, you know, success. But so I learned self-compassion and then, and my uh, public speaking anxiety just disappeared. I'm not going to go through the whole story now because I've said it in many different places, but the gist of it is that there was a new voice in my head in the midst of public speaking anxiety, which was supportive and kind and when I was able to activate that warmth, and I can tell you that the warmth came uh, like, it wasn't like, okay, Chris, now add warmth to this. I'd been practicing mm -hmm. self-compassion for uh, four or five months prior to that. And, and the warp, warmth came by itself and it just dissolved the fear. And that, that was really astonishing for me after 20 years of, of being really anxious in front of audiences. And it more or less hasn't occurred, you know, public speaking anxiety hasn't really occurred much since then. And when it does just a little bit, then I just do the same thing. In other words, I'm just kind to myself um, because I happen to be a person who tends to get anxious in 
you know, social setting or performance oriented settings. This was a breakthrough for me. And, and then as a psychologist, I started looking a little more carefully at what that was all about. And what I realized, Mike, is that I wasn't actually suffering from public speaking anxiety as much as I had. In other words, it wasn't anxiety disorder per se. It was really a shame disorder. And the thing that I'd been unable to address because it just seemed unaddressable was the thought, oh man, if I'm trying to give a public speech on meditation and mindfulness and I, and I can hardly speak, Clearly, I'm a fraud, I'm incompetent, I'm stupid. I just couldn't face those beliefs that I had in my mind around this. But what this self-compassion did was allowed me, uh, first of all, it, it, made the, it made the anxiety disappear because shame was behind the anxiety and it, it directly addressed the shame and then the anxiety disappeared. So I learned that, shame, that my public speaking anxiety was... Um, non-anxiety disorder, it was a shame disorder. Another thing I learned is that as soon as I became really kind to myself, right there, standing on the podium giving a speech, my relationship to the audience changed. In other words, instead of being the enemy, everyone looked really beautiful to me and I really liked yeah. them. <laughs> so one of the things I learned is that kindness to oneself very quickly turns into kindness toward others. And I know this is particularly relevant in any of the caregiving professions because we're told, you know, you should be compassionate and so forth. But then the question is, oh my God, I'm already so compassionate. I can't be more compassionate, this is gonna kill me. But the thought is, no, no, actually, probably by being self-compassionate, forget about compassion for others, compassion for yourself will turn into compassion for others. I discovered that right there at the podium. And, um, and then I learned another thing, uh, which is that uh, mindfulness, which is kind of uh, present moment awareness, is a way of being with difficult experience in our lives, like anxiety or fear or you know, anything difficult that happens. But sometimes what we're dealing with is just so intense. Like surely you felt before you went into Hazleton, you know, super intense emotion. Exactly. Yes. Sometimes um, our what we're going through is so intense. And a lot of uh, physicians have been going through a lot of intense stuff during the pandemic and so forth. It's sometimes it's just so intense. We cannot just be with what we're feeling. We cannot just accept what we're feeling. We need to turn away from it. We need to do whatever we can not to feel so much. And when that happens, the best thing we can do is to care for ourselves. In other words, rather than trying to hold the experience in a kind of accepting awareness, we need to hold ourselves in accepting awareness. That's the third thing I learned uh, from this public speaking experience. And uh, that is that we sometimes mindfulness, which is a kind of loving awareness of moment to moment experience is simply not enough. We need compassion. We need loving awareness of ourselves before we can actually bear what's going on in our lives. So it was, a, as you can see, it was a very, uh, you know, pregnant experience. Yes. I learned a lot. Yeah. And, yeah. and since then, you know, basically that was 2006, you know, so it's been 15 years. This has been the focus of my professional life ever since. And that, that public speaking anxiety, I mean, we can say that and it almost sounds like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in your case, it was like deeply, I mean, problem. Oh, yeah, it was disabling. Yeah. Disabling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once I was giving a talk to about 100 professionals and I couldn't speak. 
literally, I got up in front of the audience. I, I opened my mouth. I started, and nothing came out. And then somebody in the back of the room yells out, take a breath. even more humiliating you know? oh of course yeah <laughs> awful well you know so that that's especially uh, important about that you know when you are suffering so much being mindful and just experiencing those feelings is not enough you need to develop a different stance you towards different yourself stance. in the process yeah. yeah yeah you have to include yourself in the process yes in the you. process yeah that's brilliant can you talk about the, one of my favorite formulas and one of the great things that I learned in Hazel, it was the beginning of my sort of buying into all of this stuff was the formula pain times resistance equals suffering. And I know in your book, you talk a lot about that. And, and when I saw that, because I was suffering from a lot of uh, bony pain from bones, uh, my hips being bone on bone and the five level lumbar fusion that I had. And I understood immediately what that meant to me from a physical pain standpoint but this is certainly true of emotional pain too. So can you, can you comment on what that means? That formula? Yeah. So suffering equals pain times resistance. So pain is inevitable in life, you know, like hip pain or emotional pain. It will just show up at our door throughout the day all the time. You know, that's inevitable. Or it could even be empathic pain. You can feel bad for your patients or your family members. So pain is inevitable, but when we experience pain, we instinctively uh, resist it. Uh, I mean, even amoebas will pull away from, you know, acid substances, you know, mm -hmm, how, mm -hmm. how more complex are we when something difficult happens? Physically, we resist it. Emotionally, resist, we resist it. Mentally, we resist it. We just basically say, no even subconsciously when something goes wrong in our lives. So that's resistance, it's very natural, it's inevitable. The problem is that what we resist persists. So when you are in pain and you fight it, then we say pain times resistance equals suffering. Suffering is, is more than just pain. So if you, for example, have hip pain and then you fight it, then you're going to feel, for example, other things. For example, you can tell me if this resonates with you, Mike, but you're likely to feel, for example, like you'll start to catastrophize, like, oh, this is not going away. Then you're going to say, oh, this is going to ruin my life. And then what happens is when we start to kind of tighten up around our, when we get more tense about what's going on for us, then even the body tightens up and then we get the whole stress reaction in the body and it becomes a kind of a cascade of, of, of difficulties. So the bottom line is that most of the most of the discomfort and misery in our lives is actually suffering. It's not pain. That is to say, the things it's it's what we do with the things that happen to us yes. that that it makes it linger and even makes it worse. Makes it worse. Yes. So if we could, if we were able to just be with pain when it arises and learn to hold that pain in a moment of acceptance by also holding ourselves in that moment of pain, then it actually doesn't magnify. It doesn't persist. It just stays at a simple level. So 
Um, the, the good news is that since most of the suffering that we have in most of the discomfort we have in life is actually suffering, in other words, there's an element of resistance in it. If we can learn to fight less with what's bugging us and actually turn toward it with curiosity and with maybe even begin to tolerate it and so forth, when we can do that, then um, actually a lot of the discomfort and misery in our lives disappears. That is to say, the conditions of our lives may be quite similar, but our experience of them is much, much better because we're not spending every moment of the day fighting with what's happening and wishing it were otherwise. So we can be the architect of our experience despite the pain of living is what oh, you're that's, saying. That's just a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And I, I certainly know that to be true because I was so focused on, you know, my surgeries and the pain and limping around and I I'm old. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I'm saying I'm old now. I won't be able to work out. You know, my whole life is, you know, a mess. Uh, you know, I'm just a fraction of what I used to be. All these things, as you said, it just tightens up. And when I learned to literally truly accept the discomfort and just have it be kind of like a rider along with me, I got to the gym, I worked out, I, I was able to function through all of that. It, and I never complained anymore. I would say, you know, today I'm hurting kind of bad. It's a rough day. That's not complaining though. And that, that's where I found, oh my God, this stuff actually really mm. works. Mm. Yeah, you didn't have to wait very long to, to see that principle in action. No, no. Why? I actually very... met you while you were still suffering with hip pain. Yeah, because I had another hip replacement after that. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, so then that brings up a sort of a subtle nuance and a thing that can be kind of challenging for people, I think, was for me. And that's this idea of acceptance. And what does that mean? Does it mean, okay, I'm going to be a doormat or I'm going to just fall down and take it or... Or what does is, what is acceptance, real acceptance, mean? <laughs> uh, thanks for asking that question because it's, it's so easily misunderstood. So first of all, acceptance doesn't mean accepting lousy conditions in our lives. You know, if, if something is wrong in our lives, we, sh we should really try to change it, especially injustice, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so we're not talking about conditions. Acceptance refers to how we relate to moment-to-moment -moment experience. In other words, what I'm feeling right now physically, what I'm experiencing right now emotionally, what I'm thinking right now. Are we aware of what's going on in this very moment? And are we fighting with it or are we accepting? And so accepting has different, you might say, stages. Usually when something uncomfortable happens, we're not accepting at all. We're doing what we were talking about before, which is resisting. You know, in other words, we're either fighting it or we're fleeing it. But the first step of acceptance is curiosity. Like, oh, well, what is happening here? You know, the second, so that's, that's actually a radical step because we're actually turning toward our discomfort and saying, ah, oh, what's this? The second, instead of trying to get away from it, instead of trying to get away from yes. it, and that's huge. Yeah. That changes everything. That's a big principle. Turning toward it, you know. Yeah, that, that's a yeah. big, big deal. Yeah, yeah. And again, um, when when something is really tough, like shame, or frankly, you know, intense hip pain, that's a tall order, you know. But yeah, 
But so we're not saying, oh, I, I just have to accept this. That's like a kick in the teeth, you know? What we're saying is, let's get curious about this. Let's turn toward to get curious. That's stage number one. The second stage is tolerance, which is, okay, this really is like hip pain. This really is a fact of my life right now. And then learning to, as it were, live our lives while we have the hip pain, even though we might be, you know, planning to get hip replacement or something. But tolerance is, is sort of holding your seat in the middle of the storm, right? The, the third stage is willingness. And willingness refers to when the discomfort or pain comes on, you kind of are open to it arising and you're also open to it disappearing. So that's a kind of a more accepting stance. You're not just gritting your teeth and tolerating your, and letting it come and go. And then the, uh, the next stage is uh, what we call befriending. And that is actually seeing a silver lining in what's going on, you know? So I imagine there were, there was, you know, that, that your hip pain uh, in some way, Mike had a silver lining. Um, I, I don't know what it is since I haven't, I haven't had that conversation, but clearly you, you wouldn't be here talking about wellness if, if, if these difficulties didn't actually change something in your mind that convinced you that being a healthy human being is, mm -hmm. is as important as being a fabulous surgeon, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I know that's befriending. That's, that's when there's actually a quality of warmth and appreciation toward what initially was just aversive, you know? The, uh, your words are spot on. And that is because I, I, I did, I made that determination once I discovered like mindful self-compassion and some of these other tools, you know, I realized that through this process of, you know, the suffering that I've been through that I could learn a lot and grow. These are things that I had no exposure to prior, you know, to these, to these things. And so I, I did take it on as a, as a, like, I want to learn and grow from this. So it really did work. What about empathy versus compassion, Chris? I mean, there's a, there's a big difference there. And I think a lot of people kind of conflate the two, the two topics. Any thoughts around that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of uh, relates to the whole issue of uh, compassion fatigue. And as human beings, we are uh, feeling each other all the time. You know, a lot of the real estate in the brain is mm -hmm. dedicated to knowing where somebody else is coming from, even if they don't say or do very much at all. We're just really oriented toward that. Uh, we have mirror neurons, but we have whole networks in the brain that, are, that basically allow us to feel each other. And that's empathy. Empathy means experiencing another person's world or experience as one's own. When we're in the caregiving professions, this can be pretty... Uh, intense because, you know, basically we spend all day long with people who are suffering or in pain. And so question is, how do we deal with that? You know, how, how can we remain open hearted and empathic, but not overwhelmed? Because if I feel your pain as my pain, then I'm going through the entire day in pain. This is actually not sustainable, right? So what we've found, and this is really quite amazing, is that, um, and, and there's brain research on this uh, by um, Tanya Singer and Olga, Olga yeah, Klemecki, right. is that 
actually they did an interesting study in which they taught just for a few days, they taught people skills in empathy and they taught people skills in compassion, two different groups. And then they showed them a film of somebody suffering. And then they scanned their brains while they were watching that film in which there was suffering. And the people who had been taught compassion had very different brain networks activated than those who were responding with empathy alone, okay? So what's the difference? First of all, compassion is empathy plus intentional warmth, intentional right. kindness. That's compassion. Compassion has empathy, but it has the addition of the warmth and kindness. And they found in the brains of the people who had been trained in empathy that, that reward centers of the brain were activated, pleasure centers, not, and whereas the people who had learned empathy, they were just feeling the suffering and they were feeling bad. So what, what this means is that actually, if we are around people who are suffering all the time, if we can cultivate this quality of warmth while we're listening to people suffering or hearing people suffering, it, it is actually less painful for us, but we are still empathic. But most people, particularly docs who are like ultra busy and seeing so many people suffering say, First of all, I can't even, I don't have any room yes. to like activate yeah. warmth. And frankly, I don't have any warmth left to activate yeah. because I'm just trying to, you know, deal with what's on my plate. So then how do we do this? And this goes back to what we were saying before, which is, yes, we can activate warmth, but we activate warmth for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when we know, oh my God, I'm so stressed out. I'm so tired. I can't even think straight. And now I get a call from my teenage son and my, you know, and so forth. If we can, in that moment, just stop and say, oh, this is a tough moment. Yes. I don't know how yes. I'm going to get through this and do something really simple, like just kind of like rub our chests in a sympathetic way, you know, just for 10 seconds. This is an act of self-compassion. And the amazing thing is, is that these small acts of self-compassion by warming up our own experience, by responding to our own suffering, then when you look out of your eyes and you see the next patient, your reaction will be different. So this is actually interesting thing about self-compassion is it's not, or even growing in compassion, it's not like squeezing blood out of a rock and trying to be more compassionate than you are already. It's actually about letting go of the struggle that we're feeling by just taking a micro moment to recognize what we're dealing with and to be kind to ourselves. And when we, so in other words, it's actually about doing less, not more. Yes, yes. It's yes. about struggling less. Struggling us less. Us struggling less, not more. And when we do that, we naturally warm up and that warmth flows naturally all around us, your, co your colleagues, people working for you, your patients. When you are feeling just a little better in your own skin, it has, it just, everybody can feel it because everybody. you know what? Just as you are feeling them, they are feeling you. <laughs> so if you would like, if you would like your, your <laughs> suffering patients to feel a little better around you, take good care of yourself and they will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so well put. And, you know, the, uh, I, I found moments of compassion with patients 
you know, that really does relieve that empathic struggle uh, that I that I had, or even with my wife or children. You know, if if I'm if I can alter that stance from being a part of the emotional contagion of whatever their current suffering is to one of wanting to be warm and accepting towards them. As you said, this alters the brain activity in very different regions. And it's an incredibly powerful case for doing this practice with ourselves because the same thing is going on. You know, you're activating different brain regions. The stuff is real. And I wanted to get back at, you know, the putting your hand on your chest or your heart or your stomach and rubbing, because I can just imagine some of the surgeons, they hear this and they're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, it just, because I said that I, I so remember being in the, in the retreat room. And the first time we did that at the mindful self-compassion retreat, I felt so awkward. And I thought this is ridiculous. Just like I did about gratitude, but I found that it felt good. It felt really good. And I had never been so kind and warm to myself by doing something simple like that. You know, any other thoughts about the barriers to self-compassion, you know, that, that a surgeon like myself might face or other people and what kinds of barriers they might have to it in terms of being weak or whatever? Yeah, yeah, I'll be happy to talk about the barriers, but just just want to say that there are really multiple, multiple pathways to self-compassion that we hopefully get to after we talk about the barriers. Because mm -hmm. you don't, you don't, you know, I'm not saying everybody should be rubbing their chest. However, if you're going like between the OR and your office or something, nobody's gonna hold it against you if you're just doing this as you're walking down the down right. the hallway, except they may think you're having a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> may not be good in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> or you could you can figure out a way. Anyhow, there are lots of lots of things you can do. But in terms of the the obstacles, you know, there's um, throughout the whole world there are you know obstacles to self compassion and frankly the the expression self compassion is the first obstacle. You know, it basically the there's itself. Yeah. there's the cringe factor, which is self. Oh, you know, like what does this mean now? Like you know, I'm going to become selfish or, you know, isn't there enough narcissism in the world? Now I'm going to be like always focusing on myself. This is not mm -hmm. good. It's not good for anybody. Mm -hmm. Not good for me. Not good. So that's one concern. It's a myth. It's a misconception. And then the other is compassion. Like when people think of compassion, they think of softness or weakness. And let's face it, though, that's not the only way there is compassion in this world. You know, when a, when a surgeon is, you know, you know, in like hour nine of the same surgery and sticking with it, this is pure compassion. And it's not the, it's not the warm and fuzzy type. It's the type like it's, it's action oriented compassion. So compassion, we need to know, first of all, is not a weak thing. First of all, compassion is really good for the mind. It's really good for the body. It's really good for other people but it's not just soft and nurturing. It's also uh, fierce, it's strong, it's powerful, it's about protecting, it's about providing, it's about motivating ourselves to do difficult things. You know, So it's really important when you think about compassion, don't just think of nurturing. Nurturing is a beautiful thing, but it's not the only thing. And it's also not necessarily about self. So the research is really clear. Mike, there are now like 4,000 articles in the peer-reviewed literature on self-compassion. The, the research is just... Exploded. Exploding, yeah. 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 
And one thing we've is very clear is that people who are high in self-compassion, they actually are more compassionate to others than people who are low in self-compassion. And if you ask, say, the partners of people who are high in self-compassion, what are they like? They, they say, well, my partner is, generally speaking, those people are more collaborative. They're more likely to admit when they make mistakes. They work harder to correct the mistakes in relationship. So they're just basically better partners. People who, who are kind to themselves are better partners. So it's not selfish. It's the opposite. It'll make us like right. less self-absorbed. <laughs> and also some people think like, oh, if I'm self-compassionate, then I'm going to be self-pitying or ruminative or just wrapped up in myself and only thinking about my problems. But one thing that the research shows very clearly is that, uh, is that people who are high in self-compassion are actually less self-absorbed. They ruminate less. They're more likely to see what's happening to themselves in the context of the situation they're in or in the context of being a human being. So it's self-compassion really has nothing to do with selfishness. It actually decreases selfishness. Other concerns are self-indulgence. Some people think, oh, if I'm self-compassionate, I'm just gonna like, you know, kick back and never achieve, never do anything. What we actually find is that people who are high in self-compassion are more likely to pursue their long-term goals, even with, you know, short-term sacrifice, you know? So people who are high in self-compassion, they, they um, drink less, they uh, smoke less, they exercise more, they go to the doctor when they need to, you know, they take good care of themselves, you know? They have better, better diets and so forth. But one of the main concerns that people have about self-compassion is, is about motivation. That's one of so the what big you really ones. Need to, yep. yeah. What you really, you know, because, you know, let's face it, any doctor has gotten where they are through, you know, super hard work, you know, since, since forever, right? So, so then the thought is, oh, if I'm self-compassionate, you know, what's, am I going to lose my motivation? Well, the fact is, is that people who are high in self-compassion have uh, similarly high standards as people who are low in self-compassion, but they're actually more motivated to reach their goals. And they do this because the way they motivate themselves is different. And I think everybody who's listening to this knows the difference between motivating ourselves with encouragement and kindness versus motivating ourselves with like harsh self-criticism. You know, so anybody who's ever, for example, been in athletics, you know the difference between a coach who believes in you, who encourages you, who can see uh, how you're doing and, and works with you where you are and gets you to where you want to be with encouragement and kindness, not with the whip and blame and criticism and so forth. But when it comes to us, so often, the way we motivate ourselves is with harshness. And when we do that, it actually, just like say, if you're running on a track team, it demotivates us. So people who are high in self-compassion, they have high standards, but they're actually more motivated to achieve them because they do it with uh, encouragement and kindness. Like there's an inner voice or an inner attitude, which is you can do this, you know? You can do this, there's a feeling. You can do this. And when we fail, it's like, oh, that didn't work. What did I do wrong? 
how can I improve this? It's a positive attitude. And this is part of the, the self-compassionate mind state. Yeah. That, that is such a big deal. And I think all I have to do is reflect to the many times as a resident when I got bludgeoned by somebody. And all that did was cause me to constrict, curl up, and never want to be around that person again. Uh, and of course, you know, I certainly remembered the mistake, but that also creates aversion towards even going towards that mistake or the arena that it, it creates. And, and so, yeah, the, the conflation of, of uh, self-compassion with kind of lower standards is just dead wrong. Uh, it's just completely dead wrong. Yeah. You know, I just, I'd like to just talk for a moment about my kids and the impact that this practice has had on them almost in a peripheral way. You know, I've talked to my kids a lot about all these things. And one of the skills that I've developed is the ability to not judge and be gentle with them if they screw up on something. Mm -hmm. And so the, the process now is, I mean, I basically have cultivated this entire ability to gain trust and a sense of psychological safety mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. And through that, and they know my high expectations, it doesn't diminish my high expectations. They're very apparent. Mm -hmm. uh, but, oh my God, they mm -hmm. are willing to come and talk to me about anything now. Oh, I mean, it, it's, it's just tra transformed mm -hmm. my relationship with my children. Mm -hmm. And I, I view that in the same way as I need to provide myself with psychological safety mm -hmm. in, in my own head. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. I can do that, it, it, it is such a much better milieu to be living in. Yeah. Well, so we've covered the motivation and, and that. Can what I just about, add one thing? Yeah, please. The point that you're really bringing up is this, um, how do we relate to setbacks? How do we relate to failure? You know, And one thing we've found is that people are high in self-compassion. They're more able to wreck, um, to see when they made a mistake or when they failed. They're more able to recognize it and they're also more motivated to do something about it. So because self-compassion really is about giving ourselves permission to be human and human means that we're making mistakes all the time the time that's what it means now obviously in the medical profession there there's a kind of a taboo about mistakes and but i know that you know a lot of organizations are trying to turn that around um but even even when the milieu that we're working in is not sympathetic to human error, we nonetheless can be sympathetic with ourselves when we make a mistake. And frankly, that will increase the likelihood that we do not make further mistakes, you know? Yes. Self-compassion yes. gives us the inner strength to say, oops. Self-compassion gives us the inner strength to say, that didn't work. Oh, I screwed that up it gives us the inner strength to do that and then to work with it in a way which is most skillful, like how to talk about it, how to correct it and so forth. So what's really cool about self-compassion um, is that our self-worth does not come from our performance, but it comes from a sense of inner kindness and validation. And when our self-worth comes from external approval and support, we are always walking in a minefield because it can blow up any moment. But when yeah. our self-worth comes from 
kindness inside. Then when things don't go well, we have the inner resources, we have the backup, we have the strength, we have the capacity to see clearly what went, what happened and also the motivation to do something about it. So I think one of the most amazing things about self-compassion is how it allows us to be open to the possibility of mistakes, which is part of what it means to be human. Yeah, I, I, I think about kind of three ways when you've got a major problem. Let's just pretend I've I mean, I had a case, a young woman died on the table. It wasn't even through a mistake I made, but yet, you know, the, the sense of, of loss and the self-flagellation that went on, you know, because I could have done it differently and it wouldn't have happened that way. It was a devastating event for me. And so there's kind of three ways you can go about that. One is I'm worthless. I shouldn't be a surgeon, constricted, down in the garbage can. I'm not worth a thing. I shouldn't be doing this. The other one is, sort of like whatever, no big deal, you know, float up in a, in a zone of, you know, it doesn't matter. I'll just push my way through this. But the other one is the zone that you're talking about, that ability to recognize, be with it and be kind. And it really does work. It's a very different space to be in compared to those other two spaces. And most surgeons are in leadership positions. And when you can hold that space, uh, in your own life, then you will be communicating to others how they too can inhabit yes. that space. It's a leadership. It's, it's a, leadership. a leadership issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Chris, what are the, what are the three components of mindful self-compassion? Yeah. So mindful self-compassion is, is actually a, a training program, but you're probably wondering what are the three components of self-compassion itself? Right. And uh, Kristen Neff um, basically says that self-compassion has three components. And she was the first person to operationally define self-compassion. And, and in 2003, the only two articles on self-compassion were hers. Now there are 4,000. You know, so this is a wow. huge yeah. phenomenon. Um, but uh, so she basically um, defined self-compassion for us. And her model really seems to... Um, be empirically um, uh, supported, has a lot of validity. And those three components are number one, mindfulness um, versus what's called over-identification. So the ability, as we were talking about before, to be aware in the present moment in a kind of accepting way, that's mindfulness, versus over-identification, that's the opposite, which is where we kind of get swept away or swallowed up in our in whatever we're going through and we don't have any more perspective. So that's the first component is mindfulness. The second component is common humanity. And this is perhaps the most subtle, but also one of the most powerful parts of self-compassion. And this is common humanity versus a sense of isolation. So when things go wrong in our lives, when we suffer, when we fail, when we feel inadequate, inevitably we feel very alone because we feel often some shame associated with it and we feel alone. Um, but when we're self-compassionate, it's interesting. We can experience you know, disappointment or failure, but we don't feel alone. We actually feel that this is part of the human experience. There's, there's a kind of grace to this. There's a kind of blessing to this. There's a, because when we feel alone, we're actually adding insult to injury. It's hard enough to bear failure, but when we bear it alone, it's way harder. You know. So when we're self-compassionate, there's this quality of 
common humanity versus isolation. And then the last, the last component is self-kindness versus self-criticism. So inevitably, when something goes wrong in our lives, we have a little voice that says, you shouldn't have done it that way. What's the matter with you? You know, um, And uh, there might be a little of that anytime anything goes wrong for us, but there, we want to have a new voice. You know, We want to have an additional voice. We want to have a kind voice, which, um, which can validate what happened. Uh, basically, a voice with a kind of a warm tone. You know, you can say almost anything to yourself and it will land if it has a warm tone. You can even and be other very people. In instructive. And, and other people, yeah. And other, and people. other people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so those are the three components. But in a, in a nutshell, what that all means is just treating ourselves with the same kindness and understanding as we would treat a good friend, you know, which means patient, which means thoughtful, which means curious, which means uh, warm, you know, and uh, frankly, helpful. <laughs> right, right. We want to be helpful to ourselves when things go wrong, not yeah. harm ourselves, right? Yeah. I so remember the isolation I felt after that death on the table. It was uh, really incredible. And, you know, the next day I go into work and everybody's kind of pretending it didn't happen, but everybody knew it happened. It was, yeah. it was awful. And memories I will never forget. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a really a shroud of shame that descends when something goes really wrong. People don't know how to talk about it. So shame, shame is actually the opposite of self-compassion, right? Yeah. These qualities of self-criticism, isolation, and over-identification or rumination are, are qualities of shame. Yes. So it's really quite possible to say that self-compassion is the opposite of shame. But those reactions of, of uh, self-criticism, isolation, and over-identification or rumination are so instinctive when things go wrong. In other words, shame is so instinctive when things go wrong. We, when things go really, really wrong, we beat up on ourselves. You know, guilt means I did something wrong. Shame means I am wrong. Yeah, you know, I something is like really yes. wrong with me. So when something terrible happens, like you lose somebody on the operating table, inevitably you will attack yourself. You will shame yourself. And when we shame ourselves, this is the opposite of self-compassion. And what we need in that moment, more than anything, anything. Yeah. more than anything, is some kind of kindness. You're, we're, we're longing to hear some kindness from our colleagues or at least break through the isolation. But if yeah. we can't get it from them, we at least need to give it for our, to ourselves. Yeah. As you so well beautifully wrote in the Harvard Business Review in your article about self-compassion, I mean, it's really, in a, in a simple way, it just boils down to tending to somebody, tending yourself, like you would somebody that you really care about who's yeah. going through a period of struggle. And if you can just remember that, but yet it's, it's often just the opposite. Yeah. We're treating ourselves like thinking about you returning to the hospital the next day, treating ourselves as we would long for others to treat us, you know, yes. treating yeah. ourselves as we would treat a friend or treating ourselves as we would long for others to treat us because you know what? They won't. They right. won't, you know, people will not treat us as well as we need and want to be treated. 
So self-compassion is actually not a luxury. It's a necessity, necessity. to make up for the different, for, to make up for what other people cannot do because they're also in, having their own life to live. Right. So self-compassion, really important part of, of you know, just a happy uh, and satisfying life. I agree completely. All right, so it's important, self-compassion. How do we foster the habit? Because it will be very foreign and probably yeah. difficult in the beginning. What's, what, what techniques or recommendations do you have to foster that habit? Yeah, so the, the, the basic self-compassion question is, what do I need? That's the question. In a so given if, moment, you, know, you mean, yeah. Hmm? In a given moment. In a given moment, like right now, yeah. what do I need? Yeah. You know? So like if you walk back into the hospital and saw your colleagues after losing somebody, if you were to say to yourself, what do I need? You'd be like, oh my God, what, what would you say to, and answer that question at that moment, Michael? Oh God, it depends on if I'm in the constricted or non-constricted, but I, I would need somebody to at least understand who understands what I'm going through and the pain that I'm going through yeah. and to put a hand on my shoulder and say, look, this is gonna be okay. Right. You know, right. So that's what I would need. Yeah. So first of all, just to ask that question, what do I need is already self-compassionate is already warming up is already validating how you feel. Even if you don't have an answer to it, you've just begun to say, you know, something, Michael, your life is precious too. And I know where you're coming from. You've just validated by asking what you need. You've started to give yourself Compassion. But then you also said, well, maybe I'd like a hand on the shoulder or a hug, you know. Um, so we, we can begin to actually give ourselves that which we need from others. And But usually when we say, what do I need? We actually can't answer the question all that well, particularly when we're overwhelmed. So earlier on, uh, Mike, you said, you know, safe. What does it take to feel safe? So that's a really good, so you can break the question down, make it a little more specific, like what do I need to feel safe? Or what do I need to physically soothe myself right now? Mm -hmm. You know, what do I need to, you know, emotionally comfort my, so physically soothe, like maybe you just need to like get some exercise. Maybe you need to, I don't know, drink a cup of tea, you know, I don't know, take a hot tub or something, you know, what do you, what do I need to physically soothe myself? What do I need to emotionally comfort myself? You know, mm -hmm. like maybe the way I do that is with music. Maybe I do that by, you know, finding somebody to have lunch with. What do I need to validate how I, how I'm, what I'm going through right now, you know, uh, or more on the action oriented kind of in the world way. What do I need to protect myself right now? You know, like if there's, if something goes wrong in the OR, you also need to protect yourself, you know, this right. is the real world, you know? Mm -hmm. So you need to be, you need to maybe comfort yourself. Plus maybe you need to protect yourself. You know, you might need to protect yourself legally. You might need to protect yourself interpersonally. You might, what do I need to protect That's self -care. myself? That's self-care. That's self-care. Yeah. Self -care. yeah. We can't pretend that that doesn't matter. What do I need to provide for myself? Like, you know what? I didn't sleep last night because I was mm -hmm. so upset by this. How can I, how can I get the sleep I need today? Can I take like 20 minutes off and take a snooze in some corner? You know, what do I need to motivate myself to go on? You know, 
So these are answering the question, what do I need? Just asking the question Crucial. is self-compassion. Yeah. But there's also lots of other interesting things you can do. There are, there are it's, it's interesting. If you go around the world, there are three universal expressions of compassion. So it doesn't matter where you go, whatever culture it is, you can tell when somebody's looking at you with a, with a compassionate eyes. It's called a, yes. a, a warm uh, gaze. You can tell when somebody touches you, what the, the attitude behind it. And that's called soothing or supportive touch. And you can also tell by the tone of a person's voice, whether they're compassionate, by their eyes, by touch, and by the voice. The interesting thing is you can turn that around. You can do like a compassionate U-turn and you can give yourself that same experience, which means say something went wrong in the OR and you're lying in bed that night and you're beating up on yourself and you're catastrophizing and you think your career is over or that you should end it now. In that moment, you can think of, okay, who in this world really loves me or gets me, you know? And it could be a friend, it could be an aunt, it could be a partner, it could be, it could be your dog. Maybe your dog looks at you with like really beautiful eyes. In that moment, lying there in bed, you can visualize your dog's eyes or this, some loving, compassionate person's eyes. And visualize a compassionate gaze and it will change your physiology. It will change how you think. It will change how you feel. So you can do that. You can also give your, yourself supportive touch. You don't have to do this at the hospital if it's awkward, but you can do this at bed at night when you're ruminating. You can literally take one hand over the other, you can put it over your heart and you can just leave it there. You can just feel the touch, the warmth of your hand. And if you want to, you, if it feels comfortable, you know, you can just rub your chest a little bit as you would rub the chest of a dear child who's suffering. You can do this for yourself, okay? So that's a U-turn, soothing and supportive touch, or you can do any other kind of touch. And lastly, you can use uh, language, uh, gentle vocalizations. You can actually ask yourself, this is an amazing thing. You can ask yourself right now, if somebody were to whisper into my ear something that I really need to hear right now, what would that be? And, 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 you know, really open yourself up to this. Maybe it's like, you know, I believe in you. I trust you. You're a good person. You know, you've got this, whatever it may be. I love you, you know? And then if you have the courage to say those words to yourself, to actually say to yourself, if you have the courage, you're a good man, you're a good man or a good woman, you know, or I believe in you, or I love you, I love you, love you, love you, love you. You don't have to like think you're saying that to yourself. You can imagine somebody else is saying it to you. So but anyhow, and then do all this together. Imagine you're lying there, you're not sleeping, something went wrong. See those eyes, feel that touch, offer yourself a kind of kind mantra all together. It's going to change your frame of mind. Very good chance you fall asleep <laughs> if you're trying to. I, I agree. And, you know, the hand on the heart for me is a big deal. So that's one if I'm stressed and I'm, you know, struggling with something that just 
it just creates such a different feeling. Uh, and I actually learned how to talk to myself. Uh, I would, I would, and, and you say, if you have the courage, because it does take some courage because it feels so awkward and self-indulgent in the beginning, you know, it's just like, you gotta be kidding me. <clears throat> but if you just think about it, oh, I'm a worthless piece of crap versus that versus I'm above everybody else. What you really are is in the zone of being a human being by doing that and caring for yourself. And, and so I've learned to say, boy, this is, this has been a tough day, Mike, hasn't it? I mean, I even refer to myself as Mike, you know, and yeah, yeah. stuff works. It really is magical. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too. You said you even refer to yourself as Mike. Um, the, the opposite of mindfulness is over-identification. It's when there is no space between us and what we're going through, you know, mm -hmm. but when we can, you, when we can talk to ourselves in the third person, like, Hey, Mike, we actually in, immediately create space, room in which the possibility of kindness or some new possibilities emerge, you know? Yes, so yes, in the yes. beginning, you know, in the beginning, if you're really stuck and you don't know how to get out of your own way, use your name. <laughs> yeah, put yourself in the third person, right? I mean, exactly, yeah. exactly. That, don't be shy, don't be shy. You know, ultimately, let's be the thing to do is to be um, scientific about this. In other words, to have the courage to like do just do a bunch of experiments. Like, right. does this work for me? Does this not work for me? Yeah, this makes me nervous. But how about if I stick it, stick it out for another five minutes? Does it change how I feel in the way that I would like it to change? You know, like this is what what we're really talking about here is most of the suffering in our lives is uh unconscious it's automatic it 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 just makes our lives more and more stressful with self-compassion we are letting go of the stress and there are multiple ways of doing it but it's not the same for everybody but what we want to do is to experiment and see what happens see what happens this is the invitation of self-compassion See what, do it and see what happens. See if it works for you. If it works, if that particular technique works for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, what about loving kindness meditation as a pathway to a more loving acceptance of oneself? So loving kindness meditation uh, mostly uses words like we were talking about, you know, mm -hmm. um, often they're words in the form of, uh, in the form of wishes, you know, like, may I be, may I feel safe? May I be healthy? May I live with ease? Things like that. And people really should find their own language that speaks to them authentically. Like, you don't want to say anything in your head that makes, makes you gag or you, makes you right. say, no, that's not true. It has to be authentic. So, but what it really is, is good wishes, offering yourself uh, good wishes. And because ultimately self-compassion is, is goodwill. It's ultimately not good feelings. After we establish a kind of strength of goodwill, good feelings will definitely follow. And that's what loving kindness meditation does. Loving kindness meditation is a way of training ourselves in goodwill. And loving kindness, that is say phrases oriented toward ourselves, that's self-compassion based loving kindness, when we do this, when we offer ourselves kindness, 
using simple phrases over and over again, uh, eventually what happens is we change the tenor of what goes on in our minds. So first we start with simple phrases, which creates goodwill. And out of that emerges conversations, more positive, less critical conversations, more encouraging, less critical conversations, more happier, less depressing conversations because our brain has been trained in goodwill. And that's loving kindness meditation. So just like meditation, usually we might focus on the breath again and again. In loving kindness meditation, we focus on uh, simple phrases again and again. Yeah, I, loving kindness meditation for me is one of the most powerful forms of meditation personally for me. I remember in the beginning uh, in, in front of you practicing and it felt so awkward and, and unreal and ridiculous at the time. Uh, but you had us, you helped us formulate our own phrases and, and those have stuck with me. And, and it really, it does create a much better orientation for me about myself in a general sense. And it, I feel it's a good way to inculcate one with a better spirit about being compassionate towards oneself in a general way. Yes. I, I have a, I, I know somebody who had um, a lot of nightmares and didn't sleep very well. So he came up with four phrases. When he gets up in the middle of the night with a nightmare uh, and, you know, may go to the bathroom, come back and can't fall asleep. He says to himself, may I be free from fear. May I be free from shame. May I be kind to myself. May I be kind to others. It just says that over and over again. May I be free from fear. May I be free from shame. May I be kind to myself. May I be kind to others. And he just says this over and over again. And he doesn't even have to really feel each line because what he's saying is more unconsciously sort of touching the fear, touching the shame behind the fear that mm -hmm. was making him have a bad dream, affirming his value when he says, may I be kind to myself, and then also staying connected with others by saying, may I be kind to others. So he, he came up with these four phrases in himself. And I've mentioned these four phrases to any number of people who have nightmares. And so many people have said, I don't know what it is about those four phrases, but just saying them over and over again allows me to sleep. It just tones down the threat state and activates a kind of a care state. So um, as you said, Mike, people should really find language that speaks directly to their situation, but that's a bit of an art, you know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, Chris, you've been extremely generous with your time. And, you know, I, one of the phrases, uh, uh, quotes of Sam Harris, the meditation and uh, neuroscientist uh, guru uh, said, is that the quality of your mind determines the quality of your life. And I think it's, that's, I think that's probably self-evident to most people. And I think as a, as a final thought, the courage piece that you mentioned, Chris, to do these kinds of practices, it's so important. And, and I'm just reminded in my life in general, whenever I've been willing to confront uh, discomfort and uncertainty and this kind of, this, this sense of this, this is really outside my zone, my personal growth has benefited, you know, exponentially. And I can categorically state that the practice of 
self-compassion uh, that I was so fortunate to learn from you and Kristen has had exactly, exactly that effect. So mm -hmm. uh, I thank you for that. I thank you for the tremendous work that you've done and the, I mean, it's just a staggering amount of positive things that you've brought to so much of humanity. So my hat's off mm -hmm. to you and a big debt of gratitude. Oh, thanks, Mike. <laughs> yeah. So, well, thank you. And Chris, if anybody wants to look into mindful self-compassion retreats or courses, if they can get in, well, how would they find that? And how would they be able to locate you? Yeah, guys? yeah, they can get in because since the pandemic, uh, we're doing a lot of online training. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's more available. And there are, you know, 3000 teachers around the globe. But um, if you're, if people are interested, they could go to the website of the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. So that's uh, centerformsc.org. And for example, on there, you could also follow a recording on how to find your own loving kindness phrases. There are a lot of meditations, a lot of uh, information on courses and things. And somebody can also check out my website, chrisgermer.com or Kristen Neff's website, mm -hmm. which is self-compassion, selfcompassion.org. Those are three of the... Uh, Clearing houses for information if you ever want. Yeah, there's a lot of resources there. And, and I, I would encourage anyone that's even slightly interested to take the leap and go to a retreat or do a virtual training. I mean, it's, it's really an eye-opening experience and one that will definitely change your life. So again, thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. I really appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for your heartfelt engagement with all this and all the great work you're doing with wellness. Thank you. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.